Hello, I'm Anne Arundel County Executive Stuart Pittman. My office is right around the corner from Conduit Street, and it's that time of year. Politicians are everywhere from all over the state of Maryland, and the only way I can keep up with all their shenanigans is the Conduit Street podcast. So let's find out what they're up to this week. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Natasha Mayhew. Natasha, how are you today? Good. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about dueling budget plans from the House and the Senate. We'll give you some updates on some general issues. And on the second segment, we'll bring Les Knapp on, who will talk about some issues with planning and zoning and the environment. He'll update us there. So Natasha, first of all, it is very, very, very busy around town. The House and the Senate are having multiple sessions on the floor every day. And this is all because what's coming on Monday? Monday is crossover. Crossover. Yeah. And so for those that don't know, crossover is the date by which you want your bill to pass out of its house of origin um, if you want it to pass. Because if it doesn't make crossover um, and it passes after that date, it'll go into rules. And right. it just means it's a whole other hurdle um, on the pathway to getting your bill passed. Yeah. So unless somebody really wants to push that bill and you have maybe leadership behind you, it's going to be a lot harder to get it out of rules and, and get it moving. Right. And so that's why they're having so many sessions and voting sessions and floor sessions, because if for the bills that they want to get passed, they need to get them voted out and through the process by Monday. Yeah, so a lot going on. And let's talk about the budget, because yesterday the House passed their version of the budget, $46 billion plus, and much of this is centered around education and, of course, the recommendations of the Kerwin Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. In the House budget, there's about $320 million in fiscal 20 to begin implementing the recommendations of Kerwin, $500 million for school construction, and interestingly, they cut funding for the Broadening Options and Opportunities for Students Today, or the BOOST program, but that provides a limited number of scholarships for low-income students to attend private schools. So they cut funding and they approve language that restricts future scholarships to applicants who have previously received a scholarship or their siblings who wish to attend the same school. So, Natasha, essentially, no new applicants can apply for boost, and that's something that the governor certainly has an issue with. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's an interesting one. There was a lot of debate in the House committee on that recommendation. Right after the House passed their budget, though, the Senate met for their budget decisions. And what did the Senate decide? The Senate (laughs) is tampering expectations on the Kerwin funding. Their budget has about $225 million for fiscal year 20. That's almost $100 million less than the House. And basically, it was interesting, while they were meeting for their budget decisions, they got a letter from Governor Hogan and Secretary of Budget Management Brinkley, essentially asking them to really take a close look at what they're doing. And they need to be responsible. How are you going to pay for this? And they said, look, we'd love to fund everything that we can for Kerwin. We love to fund everything right now, but we feel like it's irresponsible to to allocate that much money when we don't know how we're going to pay for it. Mm, and so does that have to do with the state's overall fiscal outlook? Yeah. And, you know, we did write down revenues last week. And I think the outlook, a lot of people know that there is some sort of recession-ish coming with the economy. So I think they're trying to be practical and pragmatic 
and looking ahead to what they may be facing in the future. So this is very interesting. These are competing proposals. And Natasha, when we have competing proposals from the House and the Senate, how do those get resolved? Conference committee. Conference committee. Yeah. And so that's when members um, of the House and members of the Senate um, varies, let's say three on each side or so, um, get assigned to debate the differences between the two bills and work out, um, work them out. Uh, And this happens when the House passes a different version from the Senate. So you've got to work it out in conference committee. It so, also turns into another hurdle, actually, in sure, some ways. Sure. And so certainly we know they're going to pass a budget. These issues will get resolved some way, somehow. There are other changes. We have a lot of coverage on our blog. But those were the two big issues uh, with the House and the Senate, Kerwin being the biggest issue, the thing that everyone's talking about around mm-hmm. town. And just of note, for county governments, uh, both committees concurred with the governor's formula-driven fiscal 20 allocation of about $146 million to fully fund the disparity grant program. And Natasha, that's big news for county governments. Disparity grants address the differences in the abilities of counties to raise revenues from the local income tax, which we know is, is one of their largest revenue sources. So big news. We're happy to see that for some of our counties who will get a bump in their disparity grants. Yeah, it's uh, definitely great 20. news for those counties. Right. And also big news, um, unlike previous years, it doesn't look like we're facing any cuts or cost shifts. I mean, in in recent years, we've seen a number of proposals that would have shifted costs onto county governments. Doesn't seem to be happening this year. So that's great news. But for local health departments, while they do get a formula driven bump around two point seven million dollars, that's nothing close to what we've been asking for in one of our initiatives, right? Yeah, and so our initiative was really looking to um, restore the local health department funding, which was cut um, back at the 2009 recession um, and had never been fully restored. And so our bill would essentially have put them um, more at $80 million, where right. they're in the mid-50s now. So it would have gotten them to where they should have been, should they, were they not cut? in the recession and around exactly exactly um and so um you know as we just discussed there's there's a lot of big fiscal issues um with the state and so at the moment our bills are still in their um committees um that we had hearings a couple of weeks ago on them um and we're still hoping um there's still time for decisions to be made we've got couple of weeks left in session. (laughs) So still alive, still hopeful there that we may see some more funding for our local health departments. Of course, they are critical. They they are handling so many different issues in the state. They deal with so much and they're doing it with less funding than they should be getting. Right. And the the core funding, which is the part of... um, uh, health department funding that we're looking to restore is critical for the health departments because it really helps them target local needs and address gaps in services where other sources of funding, um, such as fee for service or um, Medicaid, they, they don't cover. Right, and and it could be used for so many things and everything from behavioral health, you know, like your substance um, use disorders and mental health treatments to um, environmental health issues and making sure your water's clean and uh, uh, food gets inspected and um, people get an immunization. So right, right. Um, lots, lots, lots of stuff that the health departments do. Lots of stuff that we don't necessarily think about every day, but they're there to take care of it for us. Right, right. Okay, so that's still alive. Those bills are still alive. We're still hopeful that maybe the House and the Senate will will address the issue. 
Let's talk about another update. A few weeks ago, we talked about small cells, right? And this is all to do with the wireless industry. And instead of big antennas, we'll have small antennas now. What's the status of those bills? I know we had major issues there, and it all had to do with our control over where these small cells would go. The industry wanted carte blanche to put them wherever they wanted on these giant poles with refrigerators hanging off right. of the sides. <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah, so um, we also had hearings on both bills. And just to be clear, you know, the industry did have their bill, and we had a community community coalition bill where we worked with our um, colleagues at the municipal league and other um, community stakeholders um, to put forward a plan for small cells in Maryland. Um, so the news there is that the House Economic Matters Committee um, voted uh, last Friday and sent both bills to summer study. And that's a significant development, right? Yes, it is. And so what does this mean, summer study, and what do we expect to happen in the interim before we come back next year? Yeah, so um, it was really acknowledgement that these are complicated issues. These were big bills. Um, each of them was about 20 or so pages long. It dealt with local planning and zoning, um, uh, rights in the local right of way. And these are all key issues that are very important to local governments and longstanding mm-hmm. um, local control. So to move such things to a statewide level as the wireless industry wanted um, was a big lift. and. Right. There were a number of stakeholders outside of local governments that also have rights in the right-of-way, and um, it wasn't even just local right-of-ways. It was state right-of-ways as well. So when you send something to summer study, um, it is partially acknowledgement. There are a lot of people that you need to hear from, a lot more work that needs to go into figuring out um, if something should move over forward at all, mm-hmm. and if so, how. Right. Um, and so essentially that means that the committee will – call meeting at some point during the interim, likely late summer, early falls when they tend to happen, um, bring together the stakeholders to present on the issue, not a bill. So you wouldn't be talking towards um, the bills that were introduced last session. You would generally be talking about the issue of small cells and uh, deployments in the right of ways. And we've discussed this issue, you know, going on in multiple different states. I think we are the first state that has defeated this this industry bill in the legislature. I know California, the governor vetoed the bill, but this was a big push. And it's not like we don't want the technology, right? Actually, we expect over the interim, more counties, more municipalities to start implementing their own plans for how to deploy this technology in their own local jurisdictions. Right. And and that's what's actually a key part of our argument. I mean, there are 600 small cells in Baltimore City now. Right. So the argument and and there are small cells in Ocean City. There there are a number of jurisdictions that have local laws. So the argument that nothing is happening um, uh, didn't stand because – Counties and municipalities are doing this now. They're working with the industry. They're deploying small cells. And you're right. Um, California vetoed the California governor vetoed um, the law a year or so ago. Um, but there are a number of states aside from California. You also have New York that don't have statewide legislation. Right. And um, of course, there are small cells in California and New York. I mean, 
you can't imagine that places like New York City and L.A. and all these um, great big cities aren't going to have small cell deployments with or without a statewide law. Right. And that was our argument, right? We don't need this law. We're doing it. But we're doing it with local input. Exactly. And that's the key. And that's it's the recognition that you can do it now and you can do it with the locals. And, uh, you know, Maryland isn't just like any other state. So, you know, if they've happened to pass bills in West Virginia and Delaware or Michigan, I mean, that's West Virginia, Delaware, Michigan. Again, that's not Maryland. Right. And you've really got to pay attention to Maryland laws, um, the needs of Maryland citizens, and the needs of Maryland's communities. And uh, the say that those community members have and what goes on in their communities. And um, they look to their local elected officials to handle their zoning and um, protect their interests. And that's what we sought to do with our bill. Right. That's what local governments are all about. It's obviously a big deal for MAKO and MML and this community coalition that we've developed. Let us do it the way we're doing it. We want the technology. Just right. let's give our, our folks some, some input. And we'll locally. continue to do that during the interim and we expect um, more deployments in the counties and municipalities and certainly um, we've done a lot uh, in the past year at all our conferences um, and keeping our members updated on this issue and we anticipate doing the same just um, continuing to work with our members um, educating them at our conferences and otherwise about small cells excellent so we also talked a few weeks ago about this Tobacco 21 initiative. And essentially what this does is it would raise the minimum age to, bur- to purchase tobacco products from 18, where it is currently, up to 21. So remind our listeners, Natasha, who is pushing this bill and what's going on with it right now? Yeah, so this bill is supported um, by the Black Caucus, as well as a number of um, health stakeholder groups, including um, the health officers. Um, and it is truly um, the idea there that um, the later in life people um, – uh, take up smoking if they ever take up smoking, mm-hmm. um, the less likely they are going to. Right. So if you uh, start earlier, the more likely you are to get addicted and then you're going to smoke right. for a much longer time. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So in I know there's a House bill and a Senate bill. What's going on in the Senate and the House? I know there was a spirited debate on the Senate floor yesterday. Uh, I think the bill got special order, which means it's delayed. But did they were they able to move anything forward before they did that? Yeah. So a lot of the movement um, at this point has been in the Senate because it moved out of the Senate Finance Committee. And as you noted, it's on the floor. And there was a lot of debate on the bills um, yesterday. Um, I know one thing that came up um, was an amendment um, to essentially um, exempt military personnel. Mm -hmm. Um, The argument there being that if you could serve the military at 18, you should be able to um, purchase uh, tobacco products at 18. Um, That's certainly something a number of states have considered and dealt with. Um, uh, For instance, uh, of the states, uh, California um, exempts uh, military personnel um, but there are other states that don't. Sure. So Hawaii went to tobacco um, to 21 and their military bases um, uh, hold that, that law and say that everyone has to be 21 to purchase. And similarly, Guam did Guam. the same. Yeah. Guam. yeah. Guam. Another- so, <laughs> so Guam is tobacco 21 across the board. 
no 18-year-olds can buy tobacco products. So you got to be 21 in Guam. Right. And so the military in Guam, their bases also um, hold to that and you have to be 21. So it is it is an interesting debate. And typically, um, these are federal bases. Sure. And so, um, they, so state law doesn't govern what they do necessarily. Ne- exactly. Not necessarily. But as you see, uh, in terms of policy, I, I think one of the arguments in California was along the lines of, well, if you're, um, if you're, if you can buy on the base, but you can't buy off the base, does that create problems right. for their base members? Um, but it's certainly something that each state that has gone to 21 considers. And um, by no means at this point, is it clear um, a, a majority one way or the other? It's <laughs> so, so we know the Senate bill is on the floor. The House bill has not moved, but is there any significance to that, or are they just maybe waiting for the Senate? Yeah, I I wouldn't read too much into that. I mean, as we've mentioned, we're getting really close to crossover. And a lot of times on particularly big bills, um, uh, you know, you could go the strategy where both committees move them out. And as Mm -hmm. we discussed, if there's differences, then it goes to conference committee. Um, Another way is just to have one side do a lot of the legwork on the bill, work through issues and send it over um, to the other side. And this is seems what's happening here is that the Senate bill um, will likely make it over to the House before crossover. And that means there's still time to get it um, back over to the the Senate and passed if that should happen. Okay, so the House will address the issue if it gets over there, and then we'll see what happens from there. Right, exactly. You only need one bill to make it over before crossover. (laughs) That's right. As long as one bill makes it, you're, you're still alive. You're still alive. Okay. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for these updates. I know you're very busy. I'm sure you have to run. When we come back, we'll have Les Knapp in to talk about some environmental and planning and zoning issues, all that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here now with Les Knapp, Mako's Policy and Legal Counsel. Les, how are you today? Doing well. Be better in a few days once crossover happens. Yeah, Natasha and I just talked about crossover coming up on Monday. Obviously, it's a big point in session. But Les, let's get into some environmental issues, some planning and zoning issues. Let's talk about where some of these bigger bills stand in terms of you know the environment and planning and zoning and how they affect counties. Okay, so I'm going to give a summary of several things, and we're going to start out at the the highest level possible, kind of the macro galactic level, uh, a bill that would have created a environmental rights within the Constitution and House Bill 472. And it sounds good on its face that who's against having environmental rights, the right to clean air, uh, g- good water, right. etc. Sounds good. The problem is the right itself is ill-defined, it's very broad, and would upset all of what we have put in place through statute and regulation at the state level, at the local level, and, and could really upend the norms of how we do things. Secondly, the bill would have 
really expanded standing, and standing is who has the ability to basically litigate or sue, who has a right that can come in to do that. And basically anyone who even just did business in Maryland, they could be based in California or another country, as long as they did business in Maryland, they would have the right to sue or intervene in any action. And that could be against a local government for doing something wrong or for not doing something such as not enforcing. So that bill was very controversial. It has been withdrawn by the sponsor. Had it it not been withdrawn, it would likely have gotten an unfavorable uh, result. So So that bill is gone. Is that Maryland's version of – are they calling it the Green Amendment? Yes, that is the Green Amendment. Okay, so that bill is off the table. What else do you have for us? So moving down a little bit to, into the sky, let's talk about the sun and solar. There is a bill both in the House and the Senate that would create a task force uh, a commission to basically study uh, where solar should go and a blueprint for solar energy in Maryland. Um, this is a bill that MAKO supported with some amendments basically um, to make sure that local zoning was acknowledged and the efforts of county governments to properly zone and site for these large-scale solar facilities. Uh, That amendment did get put into the bill, uh, and this commission has passed the Senate. And what it would basically do is look at where do we want to encourage solar, large-scale solar to go, Um, generally things like brownfields that previously had industrial uses and may not be good for other uses, put it on there, try to put it, focus it on rooftops and and parking lots where appropriate. And then when you have to go out in open spaces, try to protect and discourage its development in areas like prime productive farmland or for cutting down forests or for ecologically sensitive areas. That bill has passed the House with the amendments MAKO offered and is – I'm sorry, it passed the Senate right. and is now before the House. Its outlook in the House is questionable. Uh, the solar developers themselves are actively opposing the bill. They, is they is do- that because they like things the way, the way they are now, right? Even though we got a bill a few years ago that essentially gives us some control, as long as we go through the motions, we could say this is where we're going to, to designate for solar development to be. Maybe the solar industry thinks they like things the way they are now and they don't want to leave it in the hands of this commission. That is correct. I think they feel they can get a better deal and have more flexibility now, even with MAKO's efforts to get um, local zoning a higher priority and and a greater voice. Um, But we will see where this goes. Okay. So the Solar Commission has passed the Senate. It is in the House. hasn't moved there. And let's move down to, I think, the treetops. Is that where we're heading now? We're heading to treetop level now. And there's several bills in um, dealing with forests and the Forest Conservation Act. The bill that's in play right now is uh, House Bill 735 and Senate Bill 729. This basically would initially have created a task force to look at where we are at with tree coverage in Maryland um, to see what is actually – what forest coverage is out there. Believe it or not, there's different data sets that say different things. Uh, and also to kind of predict where we're going on our current trends of either removing or adding forests back in. Um, This has gotten changed in the House and amended to become a technical study. So it's not going to be a task force. It's not going to be a lot of members. It's just going to be one group, the Harry R. Hughes Center for Agroecology, doing a study on this. 
Uh, MAKO has signed off on this amended version of the bill. It is passing the House right now. We believe the Senate will take its version of the bill, amend it to look exactly the same, and pass that. So we'll have a study to sort of get a data baseline of where we are actually at. So maybe not what the environmental advocates were looking for exactly, but this is a study that everybody could sign off on. And I think for them, at least, it certainly advances the issue and provides more data. It does, and it will get everybody on a, a at least much closer to the same uh, page, if not on the same page, for where what's happening on the ground. Okay, and we're diving even further down now, and this is uh, into the bowels less, no pun intended here, but where are we going next? So now we are going underground to talk about septic system legislation, and there was a suite of five bills that passed, I'm sorry, that were introduced this session, um, and MAKO didn't take a position on every single bill, but we did work very carefully with our county environmental health director. Directors, uh, the Department of the Environment, to on each one of these bills to make sure that county impacts, if there were any, were addressed and the concerns of the environmental health directors were addressed. The first one where MAKO was directly involved with was House Bill 190, and we did support that bill with amendments. That's a bill that would basically create in statute the definition of what a failing on-site sewage disposal system is. That's a fancy way of saying septic system. Okay. And, and basically, under current law, when a system is classified as failing, that means you can be subject to enforcement actions or repair or upgrade requirements. But there was never actually any definition in statute. It was kind of some regulations. There were some things that clearly fell under it, but it was a sort of a little know it when you see it type of situation too. Um, We worked with the other stakeholders, the environmental health directors, uh, health officers, and the Department of the Environment, of course, um, to amend the bill. As amended, it basically codifies existing practices. It does provide some additional clarity that we would support. It does – the amendments also do address the concerns raised by the eastern shore um, and a couple of other areas in the state that have sort of unique hydrologic conditions and would – you don't want a bunch of septic systems that have previously been approved to suddenly be classified as failing. The amendments do take care of that issue as well. Excellent. So this bill now you think will move with the amendments? Yes, it has passed the House and will be in the Senate. Uh, MAKO is going to seek one additional minor amendment, uh, which we've worked with with the Department of the Environment and the bill proponents to address an issue regarding cesspools. That's a minor, what I would almost call a technical clarification over there, but I would expect this bill has an excellent chance to pass. Okay, what else do we have in the world of septics? So there's two bills that were kind of jointly introduced. One, Senate Bill 353 would have created licensing requirements for private septic system installers and inspectors. That's an area actually that some counties have regulated, but there is no state-level regulation. This would have required the Department of the Environment to create great licensing requirements for these types of of people. Um, We worked with amendments uh, to make sure that government employees who are already certified to do this work through certain certifications are exempt from this. Um, There was a second bill put in on the House side, House Bill 840, that would have created a state board of on-site wastewater professionals, which would have actually overseen and enforced the licensing requirements. Essentially, this is a regulatory business board. Okay. Um, that bill had a lot of issues as introduced. Uh, the conference, MAKO, uh, Department of the Environment, all worked together to try to um, amend the bill. Frankly, uh, we were making progress but ran out of time. Um, that bill was withdrawn by the sponsor. We will work on that issue over the summer. 
the, the community itself, a number of the advocates from the uh, community want to be regulated. They feel there are some bad actors out there in the private world and, mm-hmm. and nobody wants to go through that experience of being basically ripped off by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Sure. Uh, th- also, the licensing bill on the Senate side uh, was given an unfavorable report. So those bills will likely be back next year. Okay. Next, we have uh, a funding bill, Senate Bill 851. This would have expanded the uses of the septic system account located within the Bay Restoration Fund. That's to help people upgrade their failing septic systems to BAT. Uh, the the BAT is best available technology okay. for nitrogen removal. Also, you can connect your failing systems to sewer systems. It's a very good fund. This would have said that um, it would have expanded some flexibility and said counties can issue bonds based on the monies that were received from the fund. Um, It also required a one-time mandatory appropriation of $10 million into the fund for fiscal 2021. Because of that fiscal note and because of some concerns about whether the bonding authority would actually be used or not and whether it was helpful, that bill was withdrawn by its sponsor. You may see something come in next year in a slightly different uh, tack for that. Yeah, this is certainly a big issue for folks that are looking to upgrade to best available technology. In some cases, they have to do that. And obviously, money is an issue. So I'm sure we'll see this bill or a bill that's very much like it again. And it's going to have to take all the stakeholders coming to the table and working this out. Yes. Okay. And last but not least, we have House Bill 535. Um, Basically, this allows for the reuse of certain water diverted from going into septic systems. If you put too much water in septic systems, that's bad for the system. It can't process that. That could lead to other breakdowns. So taking relatively clean water, such as what comes from ice makers or where you get a backwash where you have a water treatment system and, and water kind of is flushed through that system, doesn't actually go into the septic system. You're catching it before then. You can use that to water your lawn and other things as long as it doesn't have any harmful constituents. Um, Both the Department of the Environment and the conference offered up some technical amendments on this bill, and it has passed the House unanimously with those technical amendments. It's interesting that Maryland, for being such an environmentally progressive state, we are really behind on water reuse, and Mm -hmm. it's just starting to take effect now. But you'll see more water reuse bills in the future. Very, very good. Okay, so it sounds like the bills that are moving are moving with our support, with our amendments. There's nothing that you're too concerned about in the world of septics, forest, or solar. At this point, no. Very good. Well, excellent work, Les. Thank you so much for joining us. Michael and I are always weary of talking about your issues because they are so technical and complicated. So whenever we can have you on, it's certainly appreciated. Always happy to be here. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As always, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe. Let your friends know. Helps us to get our message out. For Les Knapp, this is Kevin Canale signing off. We'll talk to you soon. 